whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Well, hello, hello. Uh, I'm Jane Heal. I'm a retired, now retired philosopher from Cambridge. I started my career doing undergraduate work at Cambridge in history and then philosophy. Um, after that, I visited in the States for a bit. I had my first proper teaching job in Newcastle-on-Tyne up in the north of England. And then I came back to teach at Cambridge, from which I retired um, a few years back now. And I've worked mainly on philosophy of mind and philosophy of language and on Quine and Wittgenstein and meaning and things of that sort. And more recently, I've become particularly interested in the importance of the first person plural and also the second person singular and plural. So you and we, which haven't had that much attention in analytic philosophy over the past century or two, seem to me to be rising up the agenda and to be rather important topics. So let me ask you the first official question, which is inspired by Iris Murdoch. So she begins every episode of the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but she also wrote, quote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? I'm sure temperament influences philosophical work. I'm sure that's true for everybody and not just for me. Temperament is, by definition, something that um, has, well, comes out in what you do. So, yes, I'm sure it, my temperament does influence what I do. So I, I, let me just say a little bit about that, Kieran, what I take my temperament to be. Sure. But then, as it were, go back to Murdoch, because I think there's something sort of more in, going on in Murdoch than just how one temperament influences what one says philosophically. So, I mean, as to my, my temperament, when I think about it, I... Yes, it's pretty similar to my parents. So both my parents were philosophers, Kieran. Did did you know that? I didn't know that, no. Okay, they were philosophers. They were um, William and Martha Neal, the authors of The Development of Logic, which I think is still one of the standard histories of deductive logic. And they were both academics at Oxford, and I was brought up at Oxford. But, I mean, I wasn't part of an academic dynasty, like the Darwins in Cambridge or something, not at all at all, because they were both of them um, the first of their families to come to university. And they both came from um, north of England, nonconformist backgrounds. So my father was um, from a Methodist family from Liverpool, and my mother from a Congregationalist family in Skipton in the Yorkshire Dales. Right. And they came up to Oxford to read greats, that's the classics and philosophy option, in the uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, respectively. And they met there later when they were both young academics and married and so forth and so on. And I was brought up in Oxford. The, the North Country nonconformity is the temperament, really. 
And you think of uh, think of nonconformists. Um, they were recruited to these movements, Methodism, uh, Congregationalism, and so on, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and they were voluntary associations of people with similar religious and social outlooks. And I think what's a mark of this North Country nonconformity are a set of values like education, caring about that, caring about being acting responsibly, dislike for waste and extravagance, social reform, social conscience, giving a role to women, so on. But on the other hand, uh, quite straight-laced also, there's some sort of distrust of extremism, whether of despair or exaltation, as it were. So there's a lot of upside to that kind of temperament, also quite a lot of downside. <laughs> but I resonate with all that, and I think that, that those kinds of sense of wanting a balance or not being extravagant and extreme and so on. I mean, I, I think that comes out when I think, look back on it and the kinds of philosophical views that I'm interested in, because I've never been a great one for going for sort of isms. So I've always wanted to keep some kind of touch with common sense to a kind of Aristotelian approach to things, as one might say. I mean, thinking, you know, come on, what's, what's the commonly said here? And how much of that could we possibly give up? And uh, let's try and let's try and find something which fits in as much as possible of what we want to say. That's been, I think, uh, my approach to things. So that's about your temperament. You said you also had a reaction to the Murdoch quote. The Murdoch quote, yes, because she says she says explore. She doesn't say express, does she? She says explore your temperament. Right. And uh, quite what exploring means, I don't know. But and she also contrasts that with going for the truth. So it seems to me that you ought to be self-aware and think about what limitations your temperament might impose or might suggest as to the philosophical views that you're sympathetic to. And I guess that's something that I have become interested in, particularly in these recent years, as I've got more interested in the first-person plural again, Kieran. Yeah. And there's a, such a lot of evidence that we do better in our decision-making if we take in a variety of views and include a variety of different kinds of people in, in the discussion. And, I mean, I've been thinking, what am I missing in being, as it were, so Apollonian and so little <laughs> Dionysiac? And... I mean, the, the kinds of temperament which go for extravagance and generosity and extremes, isn't there something, there's something there that one needs to be more open to? I don't know where that's leading. In one respect, it seems to push back against Murdoch because the formulation that to do philosophy is to explore one's own temperament sounds, by contrast, almost solipsistic in its picture of what philosophical inquiry looks like. And it sounds like you're suggesting you're leaning towards a picture of inquiry on which it's much more interactive and plural, and it's not really about one's own temperament at all. Well, I think we don't need to make that contrast quite so sharply. If, you, if your own temperament has got any place in it for there being other people, I mean, one's worldview must allow for the existence of other people, and one's temperament 
disposes one to this or that attitude to those other people. And if one's temperament itself disposes one to inquire whether any of one's attitudes are justified or not, then the one opens out into the other, doesn't it? And the, the struggle is to open oneself to the possible merits there are. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what context Murdoch wrote this in, and I haven't followed it up <laughs> in her works and so on. But I mean, the, the twist I'm giving to it now is wholly compatible with the, her famous kinds of remarks about the mother-in-law who's unsympathetic to the daughter-in-law and then has to, as it were, look at her more honestly to see you know, what virtues there might be there yeah. to be recognised and um, responded to with warmth. So I, mean, I guess it's that, I mean, I'm, I'm reading Murdoch, the, your Murdoch quote in that sort of spirit, um, Kieran. Yeah, it is, a, it is a quote from The Sovereignty of Good. I can't remember exactly where it, it comes, yeah. but it is from the similar context. Maybe I can pick up, though, on the other thing you suggested or drew out in the Murdoch quote, which is the implication of attention between exploring one's temperament and discovering the truth. Because I think that points to the second question, which is whether you really believe your philosophical views or whether your attitude towards them is something other than that. Yes, I think this is a very interesting issue. So one thing that's uh, notable about uh, the way philosophy has been done over the past few decades, or indeed for longer than that, but particularly the last few decades, is how very, as we're very professional it's become, um, in some ways for good, in some ways for bad. But if you think when people write and publish now what they've got their main, what they've got their eye on, one has to suspect that a good deal of it is career building. Mm-hmm. And you've also got to think that a good deal of it is taking part in a kind of spectator sport. seems to me that quite a lot of what goes on is that you see the sport going on in the journals and then you think, could I intervene in this and make a kind of showy or impressive or clever sounding move in this debate? And you think, uh, yes, I could, and that would help me secure my tenure or my promotion or something. And I, that seems a kind of uh, context in which believing the views, whatever exactly that means, might not be at a premium. It might be, as were the nature of the views and how they fitted into the bait and how it enhanced one's reputation and so on, which might be for, forefront of one's mind. But, but let me just step back and think here, what, what does believe actually, what could it mean in this context? I, d- I don't think that the danger of for practicing philosophers is saying what you, that of which you believe the contrary, expressing views where you know in your heart of hearts that this is false. I think the the temptation of the that people may succumb to in the current situation is uh, not thinking enough about the meaning of what they're saying. So the question of whether you believe it or not become sort of thinner and thinner or sort of less and less clear cut. So, I mean, consider uh, some case, the kind of case where it's belief really does amount to something, I think. For example, say, take uh, climate change, something about which I do feel quite strongly. Yeah. And 
I believe that it's happening and we ought to do something about it. And, and it's because we ought to do something about it that the belief is sort of important. And But it's difficult to say it to people because it disrupts their life and it's, it's such an enormous thing, very difficult to take on and so forth and so on. But if one were to give it real assent, this claim, then one might do something about it. But, I mean, imagine going up to someone and, and saying, oh, gosh, I know this was really, really difficult to take on, but I think you absolutely really ought to face up to this truth. Psychological states are identical with brain states. Mm-hmm. You'd say, well, I mean, what's that? So what? So what? You know, <laughs> what does it mean to say those things? Or uh, human beings are perdure rather than enduring or whatever. I mean, so what? So what? I mean, so it seems to me that what, what's got lost in this, the way philosophy has developed, is enough attention to whether the, the words that are said actually express anything that matters and that we really know what they mean. Something else that strikes me is that why is, why is the situation as it is? And I mean, one one answer is uh, as with the pressure of careers and the way that promotions and so on have become um, done as a tick box, quantitative exercise and so on. But it also strikes me, just thinking much more broadly, Kieran, that the the human disposition to push out push words around in complicated ways that say things we're not really quite sure what it means actually goes back centuries and centuries. I mean, long before the professionalization of higher education and so on. I mean, Thomas Aquinas wrote hundreds of thousands of words, and Kant and Hegel and so on, and they weren't under pressure for promotion and so on. So it's something about human beings and their relation to elaborate systems and what they can do with words and so on. I don't have more to say about it than that. I don't have any deep thoughts about our language instinct or whatever it may be, but there is some sort of quite interesting question about why we are so drawn to elaborate linguistic constructions, the real meaning of which, or significance of which is sort of um, unclear. That's really interesting. I mean, I suppose the detachment of philosophical questions from pragmatic implications is sort of what creates the space for that kind of theorizing. But you're right that there's something interesting about the fact that it is so attractive and compelling, even when it seems detached from any direct or clear practical upshot. But there's a kind of expression of an not entirely sort of disreputable interest in speculation for its own sake. Absolutely. That's right. That's right. And I, so, I mean, I don't want to rubbish it. Yeah. I, I don't want to rubbish it completely. I mean, I know the, my my philosophical sympathies are sort of broadly late Wittgensteinian, I suppose. Right. I resonate with the the thought that philosophical formulations are often a kind of nonsense, uh, but I hesitate to write them off um, completely in a sort of moralistic way, say we shouldn't do that at all. So, I mean, I, I don't want to, to, to write off what all my honest young colleagues, yes. middle-aged colleagues are doing, right. all the stuff they write, they write it very honestly. It's enormous intellectual achievement to put together this, this intricate stuff. But it's not only because of that that I don't want to rubbish it. I don't want to rubbish it because 
there's something important about this speculative impulse. Yeah. I mean, language going on holiday. Well, we all ought to go on holiday now and then. I mean, what's the wrong with going on holiday? Right. I mean, it's not clear to me that Wittgenstein wanted to outlaw it. But I do think we ought to be aware of the dangers of getting into this completely stratospheric and neo-scholastic footling. Yeah. We ought to be more humble. We ought to be more self-critical. I mean, it's got something to do with the temperament again. I hadn't thought about this before, Kieran. Yeah. But, but being aware of one's own temperamental <laughs> urge to do this kind of stuff. <laughs> but one also ought to be aware of the, of the, of the critics who stand outside and, and cross their arms and look at you scoffingly and say, what do you think you're doing? You know, and so on. <laughs> we, we ought to try to do the thing in this slightly more self-critical, self-aware way. That's my broadly my take on the on the situation. Let me transition then from talking about the intersection of philosophy as an intellectual enterprise with the professional pressures on philosophy to ask you question three, which is when a stranger asks you what you do for a living, how do you reply? <laughs> well, yes, absolutely right, Kieran. That is the next one. I tell people I'm a philosopher. I mean, what can you do? You've got to tell them the truth. But I, I have to say, there's always a kind of reluctance. Yeah. How will they take this? Mm -mm -mm -mm. Sort of slight uh, self-consciousness about it. And sometimes they say, ooh, you must be very clever then. And that's very embarrassing. Yes. How does one handle that? But, but more often, there's a kind of raising of the eyebrows or sort of scoffing and sort of, oh, well, you footle away, do you, kind of attitude. I mean, occasionally, of course, we're, we're, one meets a fellow spirit, um, but I'm reluctant to tell people because it isn't in general something that gets a, an easy response that leads on into a good conversation and tends to pass over it fairly rapidly. Yeah. Did you find that? Oh, yeah. Sometimes I avoid answering the question that way. So I just say I, I'm a professor or I teach and then yes. I wait mm -hmm. to see if people push me before I admit what I, what it is exactly that I teach. And often that manages to avoid the awkward silence in which you have to say you're a philosopher and people respond yes. as if you'd said you were a, a medieval knight or some other sort of anachronism. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, yes yeah. Yes. Well, well, I, I mean, something, something I do say, if there's any sort of receptivity or interest, is I, I tell them that it's a grand, it's an absolutely grand subject. It, it entitles you to sort of dabble about with everything and try and get the big overview. And then I sort of sometimes dip into the range of different things that philosophers think about and find one that they that the audience is interested in, the interlocutor, whatever is interested in. So, I mean, it's everything from um, logic and the foundations of computing and, and philosophy of physics and so on to why democracy matters and you know, what's the nature of art and does that matter and all the, all the questions about knowledge and human nature and so on in the middle. So and sometimes you, by remarks of that kind, you can get people to see that it might be, there might be something of interest. And it's a difficult question. It's a difficult question. And it seems to me, just going back to where we were before, yeah. it's, a re it's a pity that philosophy has this reputation. And we, to some extent, we brought it on ourselves. And it would be better if we could do the subject in a way that such that it didn't provoke that reaction. And I think one element of, of this is that it, it, it is the one we were speaking of earlier, going off into the neo-scholastic 
sort of self-contained mm-hmm. direction, and that um, if philosophy engaged more open-mindedly with other disciplines and contributed to what Rorty, in his inimitable way, called the conversation of mankind or some such, that it would be better. I mean, I think. I mean, I think philosophers are doing sort of really useful work, thinking about public policy issues and privacy, intellectual property, and there are all sorts of very, very murky issues that need philosophical input as well as expertise in the in the field to be illuminated. But, but I mean, it, so th- th- this reaction that the philosophy gets seems to me a reason to try and do it better, not a reason not to do it. Because if you think what a society would be like in which it wasn't done, well, I mean it, uh, philosophy, I mean reflection on the big questions. Yeah. What's worthwhile? What do we know? What are human beings like? And things of that sort. Reflection on those questions in some sort of detached, discursive way in which we talked open-mindedly and respectfully to other people about these things and then tried to apply the results to things like public policy issues and so on. If none of that existed, what would society be like? We'd be a society of um, narrow-minded conformists, would we not? Yeah, I often think that when confronted with the sense of the negligibility of each individual contribution to philosophy, the sense that, well, what am I doing when the world is burning? There's a kind of perspective shift when you step back and think, well, yes, maybe true of my individual contribution or any given individual contribution. On the other hand, the vision in which philosophy as a whole is not part of our social world is dystopian. I mean, it's very grim. So there's a way in which, as in many things, the whole, the collective activity seems profoundly important, even as each individual incremental contribution to it, we could easily live without. I agree. I agree with that. Yeah. I agree. It, it, one's, keep, one's keeping the space open for raising the questions. Yeah. Yes. So let me transition then away from philosophy to something completely different, which is question four. What is your greatest non-philosophical achievement? Well, this isn't something that I myself have solely done, done it together with other people. But the thing I'd like to mention here is that my academic institution, St. John's College, Cambridge, has now got a climate crisis committee. So I've been Mrs. Green, Mrs. Sustainability, or Mrs. Take Climate Change Seriously in the college for 10, 15 years. But just now, just now, we're beginning to get a bit of traction. Better late than never, really. Well, maybe this will connect with question five, or maybe not. This is the final question, an Iris Murdoch question again. She wrote, it's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. What is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? Well, this is an interesting question. One thing I might nominate here is losing control. So, I mean, that seems quite a long way from climate catastrophe. I could mention climate catastrophe too. But, I mean, in a sense, they're part of a similar gloomy vision, which is of things just going wrong and one not being in a position to do anything about it. So that's one thing. And I think many competent professional people have considerable fear 
of not being competent any longer, sort of looking a fool, or <laughs> yeah. losing grip on one's life, ceasing to be able to direct it, to get the things that one wants, and so on. So, I mean, that's one theme, but, but I mean, what I have come to think about more recently is that really the thing to be frightened is, is being alone, just n not sharing things with others, not having that meeting of eyes and meeting of minds. Do you know that you're part of some community? These difficult times that we're going through, I mean, not only climate change, but the more immediate, the coronavirus difficulties and so on, have, I think, made many people aware of this, that what's really <laughs> important to them is not only friends and family, that's important, but also um, common citizenship and the importance of the, the kinds of good things that we can have only if we all have them. And that's one reason I'm interested in the first person plural. It's the, it, it, the sense that us philosophers have lost sight of the fact that what makes human life worthwhile is shared endeavors, shared insights, many, many kinds. Well, I think that's a, an appropriate place to end this meeting of the minds. And thank you, Jane, for appearing on the podcast. Well, Kira, thank you very much for inviting me to take part and for this very interesting exchange of views. And all the best for your series of podcasts, Kieran. Thanks, Jane. That was Jane Heal. She's Professor of Philosophy Emerita at the University of Cambridge and the author of Fact and Meaning and Mind, Meaning and Imagination. Thank you for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.